This is a podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude project at Queen Mary University of London. It's one of a series looking at places and experiences of solitude and how these have changed over the centuries. Each podcast has been curated by a member of the project research team and draws on contributions from a wide network of collaborators. I'm Heta Howes and I'm part of that wider network. This is episode one, The Sanctum. We began recording for this podcast series before the global pandemic of 2020, but as lockdown fell on the UK, the themes of solitude and isolation became increasingly resonant with events in the wider world. And we continued recording our podcast through the lockdown with makeshift studios in bedrooms and kitchens. In this first episode, curated by Professor Barbara Taylor, who's the principal investigator on the project, we begin by exploring solitude in a rather different context, a spiritual context. For millennia, solitude has been associated with intense forms of religious experience. And in this episode, we're going to hear some specific examples of that in the Christian tradition from the Middle Ages onward. And the person to talk to about all of this is Hilary Powell, an expert in medieval studies based at Durham University. Like me, Hilary is fascinated by the solitary spiritual life in the medieval period, and especially anchorites and hermits, those people who withdrew from the world to dwell exclusively with God. So you had hermits who would venture abroad. You know, they would be by themselves, but within the landscape, within this kind of much more free lifestyle, and who would, you know, come to inhabit a space that was outside and away from other religious spaces. Um, Conversely, you had anchorites who would often situate themselves in a space next to the church, and they would be in small, enclosed structures, bricked up, There would be perhaps a a squint that would enable them to see through into the church, particularly to be able to see the the high altar and then witness the elevation of the mass. There would also have been a door that may have had a window or a kind of opening that would enable you to have spoken and to have passed food and, and other things back and forth. So the solitary life is sort of the ideal, perhaps you could say, and that's where you can sort of commune more closely with God. Absolutely. But this isn't to say that one couldn't also achieve this in a much more sort of mixed form of monastic life. So quite interestingly, later on, we see with people like Bernard of Clairvaux and the Cistercians, a much more developed interest in, in kind of how, how the contemplative life can work in connection with what was known as a much more mixed spiritual life, where one was called back from one's contemplation into the affairs of the community uh, and the idea that one was there to support other people. So you have this kind of movement, ideally, towards this, this state of contemplation, but increasingly this idea that that was not actually something you could attain for very long and that you were called back to the affairs of the world, even if it was just the affairs of the monastery as opposed to the kind of secular sphere. For a medieval anchorite, what would their life be like? Well, it would have been theoretically very secluded. There is many descriptions of 
of sort of saints who, and this is sort of the early Middle Ages, who, who took themselves off and created these small cells, often self-built um, structures where they lived and prayed and, you know, did sort of work. I say work as in, you know, this idea of what is the work of, of uh, a monk. And of course, that is to pray. So these were their sort of little spaces. And they could be very small, they could be quite expansive, certainly in the later Middle Ages, some of the material culture that, and the archaeology and the sort of the architecture that survived actually suggest they might be bigger than the, the small sort of four-foot cells that are described in some of the earlier texts. In terms of what they would do within this space, that's a little bit more unclear, quite what their lived experience was like. We know they were supposed to pray, but, you know, what does that actually involve them doing? Yeah, it's quite tricky, isn't it, when you work on this kind of field, because there's all these guidebooks about kind of the fasting that anchorites should do and the amount of prayers they should say and how their living situation should be mapped out, but not necessarily so much on the day-to-day feelings or practicalities. Mm. One of these guidebooks is De Institutione Inclusarum, or A Rule of Life for a Recluse, written around 1161 by Elred of Rivo. Here we have lots of finger-wagging about anchoresses who aren't quite living in spiritual solitude as they should. How seldom nowadays will you find a recluse alone? At her window will be seated some garrulous old gossip, pouring idle tales into her ears, feeding her with scandal and gossip, describing in detail the face, appearance and mannerisms of now this priest, now that monk or clerk, describing too the frivolous behaviour of a young girl, the free and easy ways of a widow who thinks what she likes is right, the cunning ways of a wife who cuckolds her husband while she gratifies her passions. The recluse all the while is dissolved in laughter, loud peals of laughter, and the poison she drinks with such delight spreads throughout her body. When the hour grows late and they must part, both are heavily burdened, the old woman with provisions, the recluse with sensual pleasures. There's quite a lot of potential perils to to being in seclusion. You know, the devil can come and try and tempt you. You can think that you're doing the work of God and actually you can be being led down a false path. It's a very extreme form of life. Why were so many people newly attracted to it in the 11th century? I think that there was an interest in, in testing yourself. And I think the point about the solitary life is that it was, on one hand, this very kind of austere form that, as you say, created all these kind of perils because, you know, not only do you have sort of doubts about your vocation, maybe regrets that you're doing it, but you're dealing with kind of the boredom of being by oneself and and perhaps you're not used to being away from society, even monastic society. There was still that kind of, you know, communal space. And I think that the point about the hermit existence or the, you know, the anchorite was that it enabled you to really learn about yourself and sort of plumb down into those very depths and and allow you to really battle those, to come through this. So, you know, this idea of, of the devil actually being this kind of just a shorthand for negative thinking. These were monks who were really 
getting to grips with the darkest, deepest thoughts that were so antithetical to their idea of their vocation and were actually getting in the way of achieving contemplatio, which was, you know, this highest state of contemplation. I'm Reverend Dr. Erica Longfellow, and I am the Dean of Divinity of New College in Oxford, which means I'm the chaplain, but I'm also a scholar of English literature, and I specialise in religious literature of 17th century England. So we've been hearing in this programme about how in the medieval period, religious people were often seeking solitude out to commune more closely with God and sort of anchoritism as a very extreme form of that and the best way to really talk to God and hear his voice perhaps in the silence. Is that still the case in the 17th century? Are people still seeking out that solitude? In 17th century England, which is Protestant by this time among the Protestants, no, absolutely not. There are some people who seek out solitude, but for the most part, people are really terrified of solitude. Even the word solitary is a negative word. So it means, well, someone, for example, said solitude is no better than the grave. Solitude and misery go together like water and ice. One follows naturally from the other. The idea is that solitude is definitely something that you don't want to seek. So all of the religious literature around solitude tends to tell you how to cope with the fact that it's terrifying. So it's not at all about seeking it out. And that's quite surprising, isn't it? Because I think we, I mean, just thinking about my, even my secondary school, Reformation, Protestant, Catholic education, you know, that we think of Protestantism as being much more inward and solitary. So is this quite a new idea that you're finding or... Is it just a misnomer that at this time people were looking for more solitary ways of talking to God? I think many of my historian colleagues would be quite surprised to know this because I think people just haven't looked into the literature for it because Protestantism does put an emphasis on the individual before God in the sense that your salvation is a matter between you and God and we take away the intermediaries. But I think what we forget is that there's also this cultural layer where the culture, you know, even outside of the religion, is very, very communal. So even the architecture makes it very difficult to be on your own. People at an upper class, they would have had servants sleeping in their bedrooms. Rooms were not arranged on corridors, but were in fact leading from one into the other. It was very, very rare to have a closet, which is all that means is a room where you can lock the door. So even to have a room in which you can lock the door is very rare. And we often read the word closet, even historians, and assume that that means it's a space for prayer. But in fact, the evidence shows that closets were the place where you could lock away things. Mm-hmm. So they were offices, they were storerooms, people stored you know, valuable foodstuffs as well as their other treasures in them. And secondarily used them as a place where you could shut yourself away and pray. But you had to be quite rich even to have that space. So for most people, getting away from other people is something you have to really seek. And that's seen as something that often is just a little bit strange and potentially a bit dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Like, what are people worried will happen if they're kind of on their own too much? Um, Well, people are worried about what you might think about when you're on your own. 
And this comes out, for example, in the way that they read Bible stories, which we wouldn't think of as being about solitude. So the story of David and Bathsheba, for example, King David on the roof of his house sees Bathsheba bathing. He sees her naked and he desires her and she's married to one of his generals and then he does a horrible thing to make sure he can have her. And in the early modern period, there is more than one writer who reads that story as being about the fact that David was alone. And if he wasn't alone on his roof, then he wouldn't have done this. He wouldn't have had these very distressing, sinful thoughts because there would have been people around him to stop him doing that. And the idea that that's a story about the dangers of solitude is just really strange to us. We see it as a story about rape. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard that reading of it before. So... Is the idea that you need to be around sort of fellow vigilant Christians to keep keep yourself in good behavior? Yes, yes. So other Christians are what check your thoughts. They're what um, keep you from dropping into melancholy, keep you from falling into temptation. They keep you in the community and in a kind of clear, rational thought pattern. So you've already mentioned that in the 17th century, the very architecture of people's homes means that solitude is something that has to be sought out and maybe is a bit suspicious. Are there any other reasons why at that particular time that you're looking at, there might be some anxieties about being on your own? Well, there's also Catholicism. So everybody in this period who is Protestant has to be against Catholicism. It's almost kind of the way that we can't ever say anything nice about the Nazis now. I know that's a very extreme example, but you know, you have to be anti-Catholic if you're Protestant in this period. So part of that is being anti-monasticism, anti-recluses and anchorites like you were talking about in the medieval period. Um, We have to push those things away and always be against them. So the religious people are fighting that example and that past whenever they talk about solitude. So that's one reason why it takes a very, very long time for Protestants to come back to being able to be positive, even about just an individual praying on their own. So do you think they would have been quite suspicious of a medieval anchorite, the thinkers that you work with? Would they think, or what what might they be thinking about? Yes, absolutely. They would have been suspicious of it. And they love to tell stories about monks and nuns who uh, get up to all sorts of sexual shenanigans. So it's kind of seen as a cover for that sort of thing. So does solitude for spiritual purposes remain totally out of favour? Aren't there some early modern Protestants who still seek communion with God through solitude? They're starting to look for solitude from the beginning of the 17th century. So you start to get translations of Roman Catholic works, particularly Jesuit works, but also a campus that are Protestantized and made accessible to English Protestants and promoted by people like Joseph Hall, who's a very centrist and very popular bishop. And there's, you know, there's a general understanding even in the 16th century that we do need to have a life of prayer on our own. Thomas Akempis, the 15th century author of The Imitation of Christ, was one of the most influential advocates of spiritual solitude across the Christian world. Seek a suitable time for thy meditation and think frequently of the mercies of God to thee. Leave curious questions. Study such matters as bring thee sorrow for sin rather than amusement. If thou withdraw thyself from trifling conversation and idle goings about, thou shalt find thy time sufficient and apt for good meditation. 
The greatest saints used to avoid, as far as they could, the company of men, and chose to live in secret with God. So Protestants are reading Thomas Kempis and other theologians like him. Are they actually actively seeking solitude from early on? Actively encouraging that and giving people structure for that starts to come later. Um, so you get people like Daniel Featley in the 1620s, who at a time of plague, when he becomes distressed by his own isolation from another sickness at a time of plague, but when nobody can go into the churches and he starts to think about how can we feel connected to each other and the life of the church while we're isolated by this sickness. And so he writes, that becomes an excuse for him to write a handbook to devotion called Anquila Pietatis, so the handmaid to private devotion. And in writing that, he is giving people a way, a form of private prayer, which connects specifically to the feast days of the church and the liturgy of the church. So it's a way of doing something at home that makes you think about what should be happening in church or what is happening in church. So it's all still linked to quite a social religious landscape. Yes, yes. So even solitary devotion is about connecting back to that communal identity. Can you empathise as both a researcher of this period and religious thinkers then and as a chaplain in the 21st century with these sort of fears and anxieties about being on your own? I certainly can. I mean, both through my own experience and through pastoral and welfare work with students and with other people, there is a point at which solitude, it can feel like you can feel like you have this desire for solitude, but actually it's just feeding what they would have called melancholy and what we call depression. So to give a 17th century example, there's a character called Nehemiah Wallington, who is a London joiner, who left tons of notebooks and diaries. And he got very interested at one point in his life in contemplating his own death, which is something you were encouraged to do at the time. But he becomes suicidal in doing that. And a a pastor just tells him, you know, you need to put the little skeleton away, Nehemiah. (laughs) (laughs) And and go and seek out people. And I have that conversation often with students that, you know, you need to find the people that you trust. And it doesn't even mean that you necessarily need to tell them what you're doing. You just need to remind yourselves of yourself of that connection with other people. And that kind of pulls you back into life and away from that melancholy. That was Reverend Dr. Erica Longfellow, reminding us that even for deeply religious people, solitude can have a dark dimension. But spiritual solitude isn't always to be found in obviously religious places. James Morland is a postdoctoral researcher for the Pathologies of Solitude project. James, there's always been quite a long tradition of associating gardens with paradise or heaven. So from right from the Garden of Eden to television programmes like Jeff Hamilton's Paradise Gardens. But this association seems particularly strong in the 18th century. Why is that? Yeah, I do think it is particularly strong there because I think there's kind of an interesting crossover of histories in the long 18th century when it comes to thinking about solitude, gardens and religion, where we really see the development of English landscape garden design. There's also the rise of retirement poetry with images of retirement from society as a space for contemplation and thinking. And those two histories really come together when you start thinking about solitude within gardens in the 18th century. And you're right that we kind of immediately associate 
gardens and religions with paradise or the Garden of Eden. And that's certainly an association that was in the 18th century too. And at the root of all of that, I think there's the 18th century ideas of nature and its intrinsic connection to God, where God is behind and within the natural world as its first cause. And then depending on your theological slant is often a kind of active and providential actor within it. And to kind of go back to that idea of retirement, I think that's what links all of this together, that to withdraw from society and to be with yourself in a form of retreat into God's nature was a space to allow contemplations about God and your relationship with him to flourish. The focus, it seems to me, in the 18th century um, often seems to be on trees specifically or groves of trees. And I'm thinking here especially of John Evelyn's hefty book, Silver, A Discourse on Forest Trees. What is it about trees that captures the imagination at this period? Yeah, I think there's definitely a focus on trees throughout the 18th century, or I guess we should call it the, the long 18th century here, or I think part of what that has to do with is the shelter that trees can give you. And not least because they also have a long history of being associated with knowledge or being the tree of life. But I also think from a poetic perspective, there's a long classical history of thinking about those sylvan spaces of solitude as places of productivity for poets especially, and their solitary thinking about themselves um, and with God. But John Evelyn is one of the most famous restoration thinkers and also wrote a tract on solitariness, turned to his garden as a kind of extension of both intellectual and spiritual life. And as you mentioned, his book Silver, Discourse of Forest Trees, uh, which was published in 1662 and was actually the first book published by the Royal Society. He kind of goes through lots of different examples of groves of trees, but always with a religious slant. So it sounds like the goal, it really is contemplation then, which these writers are seeking through solitude and silence in particular natural spaces. Definitely. I think trees were key to that idea of contemplation. And there's some lovely poetry that comes out of the century that kind of mentions the sweet solitude of these groves. And that all kind of represents a form of divine purity. And, you know, just as you've been kind of turning back to Evelyn, I've often been turning back to Richard Steele, who wrote a really widely read publication called The Spectator. And in 1712, he wrote about a solitary grove uh, with a big range of trees and a, a babbling brook, uh, where he sees the figure of solitude in the middle of it. And on either side of solitude is the goddess of silence and the goddess of contemplation. So far, the, the picture you've painted is very much one of sort of solitary contemplation, very appealing solitary con contemplation. Did any more sort of institutionalise Christian practices like preaching, for example, make it out into the garden? Or was this very much a sort of internal private devotion? Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting to kind of contrast those ideas of, of being solitary and in contemplation, but also, you know, that, that idea that's so intrinsically linked to kind of religious practices, which is community, and whether they kind of come together. And I think there's definitely 
cases of those practices making it out into the garden. If we turn back to Evelyn, where he suggests that gardens were a space where Jesus and his apostles preached. But there's also kind of certainly some examples of that happening in England, um, although slightly earlier than the 18th century. So during the reign of Edward VI, so around mid-1500s, there was a strongly Protestant member of the St. Catherine Cree um, parish in London who decided to kind of leave his pulpit behind and preach out on top of a high elm tree in the churchyard. So there's definitely that kind of history to go along with it, that there is a history of the natural world being a space for religious community, as well as that kind of solitary contemplation and individual connection with God. And was there any backlash against that? I'm just thinking preachers up trees, is that something the church sanctioned or were they a bit troubled by that? (laughs) I think kind of in any aspect when we're thinking about the history of solitude, there's always some sort of backlash. From my own interests and poetic interests especially, there's definitely kind of hints of the backlash there. William Cooper, who's known for his kind of natural poetry in the 18th century, wrote a poem called The Yardley Oak, where he suggests that he might with reverence kneel and worship an oak tree as a relic of ages. And he admits that that is idolatry, but he does say that it has some excuse. There he alludes to kind of the larger history of of Druids imagined sanctity in oak trees and that larger kind of Britannic history of going into the trees and being by yourself. But obviously they worshipped the woods and groves before knowing about Christianity. Um, So that's the peril of solitude, right? That when people are on their own, you have no idea what they're actually getting up to um, or what they're thinking about. James Morland. And we'll be hearing more from him in the next two episodes about gardens and perilous places of solitude. Someone who has chosen a solitary spiritual life today is Brother James Kester. James is a superior of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, an Anglican monastic community. Brother James has lived in this monastery in Cambridge, Massachusetts for the last 30 years. It's a community, but solitude is built into daily life, with an hour every day in the morning set aside for private prayer. When I spoke to him, I asked him about the importance of that time spent in solitude each day. It's really the core of the day for me. We sing an antiphon, a short verse before and after one of the canticles at evening prayer that talks about this is the gate of heaven. And for me, that hour is the gate of heaven where I I am alone and I can sort of, on my best days, gaze into heaven. On my worst days, I get distracted and I read my novel. (laughs) Yes, I guess you can't have a gateway to heaven sort of every single time, but I love that description. (laughs) I was reading the rule of daily life for your community on, on your website, and I was struck by one line, which, and I'm quoting, maintaining a balance between solitude and engagement with others is not always easy. Could you say a little bit more about that, that sort of fine line between making sure you've got your own sort of solitude and that you're also engaging with others? in your community? People want as much as we can give them. And the more we give, the more we offer, the more they want. And so trying to be responsive to to other people's needs can be a challenge to respond to our own needs of of solitude. There's also, um, there's another line in the rule that talks about light and dark. 
that when when we're alone, when we're in solitude, it's not just all sitting gazing into heaven, but it's also struggling with all those inner voices that go on inside you. That's often when I want to turn to my novel. I think, oh, I don't want to think about how stupid I was yesterday or how mad I am right now. It's much easier to read my novel. (laughs) So it sounds like sort of building in that solitude in the daily life is core to the community. What are, to your mind, the benefits of spiritual solitude that are crafted by that? Well, first of all, I think that as a Christian, I can only speak from the Christian experience. But I think the purpose of solitude for the Christian is not time simply to be alone, and nor is it simply time to sort of reflect, doing that inner work. But the purpose of solitude is actually to encounter God and to engage with God. So for me, the the benefit of, of solitude is that personal encounter with the living God so that we can begin to see ourselves and the world as God sees it. And I think that the way that God sees us and God sees the world comes for me being a member of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, the Gospel of John is really important. And that verse from John's Gospel that I keep going back to is, God so loved the world. So for me, the purpose of solitude and the purpose of that encounter with God is to begin to see myself and the world as the object of God's love. Yeah, that sounds, um, I know you've written on Julian of Norwich, a sort of medieval anchoress, and I feel like that's exactly what she would have said as well, that, that her yes. kind of yeah. conversation with God alone came is all about God's love. That's right. There's a sort of built-in solitude that you mentioned to daily life. Do you personally seek out solitude more often, sort of beyond that time in the day? Is it quite important to you? Yes. There are 13 of us living here at the monastery, and while we live together, eat all our meals together, while we're in the chapel five times a day together, we're also alone quite a lot during the day. We all have our own job assignments. We all have our own work. And mostly that is done by ourselves in solitude. We also have Monday is our Sabbath day when there are no meals, no services, and we're free to do what we want. And most of us spend a large chunk of Monday by ourselves. Sure, we might watch a movie together, we might have a meal together, but a lot of the time on on our Sabbath, I'm by myself because I I really need that, that time by myself. We've been hearing from some of the other interviews for this particular episode that at times there's been a sense in the past of the potential perils of spiritual solitude as well as its sort of many enriching benefits. So for example, the early modern period saw many clerics arguing against solitary worship or too much of it. Is there any sense that today for you that solitude might be spiritually risky or do you think we sort of shed that association of of risk? For us, the purpose of solitude is not sort of simply navel-gazing or inner work. It's actually this encounter with the other. And so I think the risk remains that if solitude doesn't produce or enhance that encounter with God, and if it's simply sort of constantly gazing inward or gazing at ourselves, then I think that there's a risk there. 
and I, I would I would argue um, that it's not it's not what the monastic tradition understands solitude to be. I think that's a great distinction because I think nowadays we often think about solitude as being very inward, but as you say, for sort of spiritual monastic solitude, it's about sort of looking outwards and and thinking about an encounter with God. How important do you think silence is in those moments? Is it important to be solitary and silent? The simple answer is yes. And I don't want to suggest that listening to music is not prayerful or doesn't or can't um, enhance that encounter with God. But I think silence is important because there's so much noise going on around us that we can get distracted by the noise. I don't simply mean, you know, the construction outside. I also mean kind of the noise inside, you know, my the whir of my thoughts wondering, you know, what I should do or, you know, if I'm making lunch today, do I have do I have the onions and then kind of obsessing on the onions. That kind of inner noise is also as much distracting as the outer noise can be. So do you think that sometimes in seeking sort of solitude, it's about quietening that inner noise as as well? It is. And and that that for me is the real challenge. I can sometimes, you know, if there's construction or the air conditioner or whatever going on, I can sometimes shut that out. But it's it's the inner noise that can be really distracting, you know, sort of those shopping lists that we all have going through our heads either literally or figuratively, uh, you know, kind of mulling over why I'm so angry with brother so-and-so <laughs> can become distracting in, in, my, in, in my attempt to encounter God's love, who loves both me and brother so-and-so, who am I really angry with right now? Slightly personal question, but what's it like for you, some of those moments? I mean, we've got sort of records of, you know, historical uh, Christians and solitudes that we mentioned Julian of Norwich earlier, and Julian has visions of God in sort of moments of solitude and contemplation. Are there any sort of standout moments for you when you felt particularly close to God in that kind of solitude? I haven't had any visions, but I have had... I would say I have had moments of awareness when I am aware, going back to that verse from, from John's Gospel, when I am aware of being, being loved by God in spite of some of the stupid, terrible, mean, hurtful things I've done, that God still loves me. It's not that God only comes to me in solitude. I think God is always present. But I... I need those times of quiet, those times of stillness, those times of silence uh, to become aware of uh, aware of God. Is there a sense in which there can be too much? So you know, do you, I would put it another way: Do you ever feel lonely? Oh, oh, I think loneliness is a real challenge. You know, I've I've been in the community for thirty years, and and I think all of us to a greater or lesser extent, experience loneliness. I think a life of solitude can also be a real life of loneliness. And, and so that's, that's one of the distractions, um, I think, is when we, when we feel really alone and lonely. And I don't have a simple answer for that, but loneliness is a real challenge. And what do you think the difference is then between sort of a more sort of beneficial solitude and loneliness, or is it is the line too thin to to be able to draw? I like your image of a thin line. 
um, <laughs> I, 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 think it, I think it is a thin line between being lonely and being alone with the alone. And sometimes the, the gift of loneliness, I think, is to learn to become your own friend. The challenge of loneliness is sometimes we spend an awful lot of time thinking about the kind of person we want to be but aren't. Um, and so we start beating ourselves up. And I think that's when loneliness can, can become becomes a real challenge. Brother James Kester, speaking from his monastery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And if you'd like to explore ideas of solitude and silence further, there's a special extra episode, number eight in this podcast series, recorded earlier this year. It's an interview with the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Most Reverend Justin Welby, and with Dermot McCulloch, Oxford Professor of the History of the Church. They talk about solitude, silence, thin places, and speaking in tongues. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude Project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust and hosted by Queen Mary, University of London. It was presented by me, Hetta Howes, and produced by Natalie Steed. If you want to hear more episodes, search for Solitude's Queen Mary on SoundCloud, or you can head to our website, where you can discover much more about our project and read our blog posts on solitude during the pandemic and many other topics. <laughs>